Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. been up to lately well i know what you've been up to watching rupaul's drag race all morning (laughs) (laughs) i've converted you to my religion (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for giving me your hulu password (laughs) (laughs) my next objective is to get you into bravo tv and the world of the real housewives this is a dark and slippery path (laughs) Now that all of the listeners are judging me, maybe we should talk about double reads. <laughs> well, lately, what I've actually been up to is I got to play my first concert with the Baton Rouge Symphony uh, on Thursday, and it was so much fun. That's awesome. What do you play? Yeah, I got to play the English horn part on Pines of Rome and the Three-Cornered Hat. Wow, big program. It was. And for me, it was a little bit of a redemption tour because the last time I played the three-cornered hat was when I was in grad school and I just mangled it. (laughs) But this time it went really well. (laughs) I feel much better about that piece now. (laughs) What are you up to these days? Well, this last week started off, I was actually feeling pretty overwhelmed and I had a really, really bad Tuesday. Tuesday is a pretty open day for me. And so I was like, it's going to be my get back day. I'm going to get on top of all the stuff I'm feeling behind on. And I am going to practice like um, 40 hours that day and everything's going to be awesome. And (laughs) Sounds realistic. Yeah. Unrealistic expectations of my day. And then all this stuff like popped up and kind of got like put into the day that wasn't supposed to be there. And so I was just watching the time. I hate days like that. Dwindling away. And then I was like, but you know what? I'm going to take time for myself. I'm going to do something for myself. And I enjoy cooking. And so I looked up this new recipe that I wanted to try. And all day I was looking forward to making this dinner with this new recipe, it it was so bad. It was just like, no. it was the worst. It was supposed to be like this uh, mock chicken tikka masala. And uh, we sat down to eat and I looked at Chris and I was like, this tastes like tomato water in soggy rice. And he was like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And then he took a couple bites and like just the the life was like leaving his eyes as he was eating this. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, this is not good. And so like even my dinner, even my little bit of self-care for that day got ruined. But this, the past couple of days have been really awesome. This weekend has been great. I haven't put too much pressure on myself and surprise, surprise, that's created an environment where I'm able to get stuff done and, and enjoy my time. So, uh, I got it back, but my, my week didn't start off too super great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it wasn't chicken tikka masala. It was chicken tikka masour. I put the mess in masala. Mesala. 
<laughs> mess I'll uh, be eating something else for dinner tonight <laughs> get out those pizza rolls <laughs> uh, well good thing we're not talking about bad Indian food we're, just, <laughs> we're talking about practice techniques I thought of this topic because I'm currently like you talked about your redemption tour with the three-cornered hat. Mm-hmm. I had for the, a very long time, a very tumultuous relationship with the second movement of the Sanson Bassoon Sonata. Mm-hmm. My undergraduate senior recital was the Hummel Concerto, full, the Sanson Sonata, full, the Villa Lobos Saranda das Setas Notas and the Wilson Osborne Rhapsody. So you underprogrammed it. <laughs> oh, plus a chamber piece. I forget what chamber piece it was, but there was definitely a chamber piece on there. Oh, the arrogance of youth. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure there are some undergrads who can handle that program. I was not one of them. And <laughs> I remember going to bed the night before my senior recital and thinking to myself, this Sanson will probably not go well. Like knowing that it did not get the time that it had needed to get. And just that being my last thought before I went to bed at night. Is there anything worse when, with, than like reckoning with your own humanity? Yeah, you didn't do the work. Like that scene in Julia Ugh. and Julia. She didn't do the work. <laughs> uh, I knew it. And the recital, that that piece went accordingly. It wasn't a crash and burn, but it was just, I left work to do on the stage. And that's a very humbling, not great feeling. And as a result, for a very long time, I avoided programming that piece like the plague. That's a shame because it's such a lovely piece. When it comes time to program it, it still feels like my nemesis that I have not like reckoned with. And I need to have like this final showdown where we become friends. Is that how you make friends? Showdown, (laughs) yes. A A duel, a fight to the death. (laughs) That is so intense. (laughs) But now you're going to be my friend. You're going to be my friend. <laughs> but so I've decided that I'm going to memorize it. I'm not going to perform it memorized. That's not the objective. But my hope is that through memorizing, there will be a new level of intimacy, knowledge, and therefore comfort. So, yeah, I've got about 75% of it memorized right now. And it is going very well. And yeah, I've had some good therapy <laughs> sessions, but it's not something I've ever, I've obviously have memorized concertos before, but memorizing concert music for the sake of getting comfortable with it is just kind of a different practice technique. Yeah. It's time for my redemption with Sanson in my mind as well as on stage. So yeah, that's, I love that. that's been my practice strategies lately. That really is a good link into something that I do a lot when I practice is sing it, whether it's solfege or not, Um, just being able to sing the intervals that I'm going to play. I tell my students all the time, if you can't sing it, you can't play it. Because the whole idea of doing what we do is that the music exists in your head first. Mm Mm-hmm. So you cannot be a victim of whatever happens to fall out of the instrument. You have to have an idea that you then guide your technique to be able to do. Mm -hmm. So being able to predict the intervals, audiate the intervals and control it in my mind so that I know exactly what's going to happen before it comes out of the oboe has been really helpful for me. Awesome. Solfege is helpful too. If you have a great grasp on solfege. Oh, yeah. Well, in a, in other countries, solfege is integrated into the music curriculum earlier, or I think just like emphasized more. I think that's better. And because I remember in lessons, Benjamin would sing my part, not on mm-hmm. law or duh, but he would sing it on solfege. And it was just a part of his training. And I remember mm-hmm. going, oh, when I'm saying law, he's thinking about scale degrees and function. Right. you know, he's accomplishing more in doing the same type of thing and wishing that I had those skills as readily available at my fingertips. 
Right, right. It's especially helpful when I have a fast passage that I can't quite seem to consistently get under my fingers. There's usually a musical reason for that. Lucarelli used to tell me that all technical problems are musical problems. He used to make me sing them in the lessons. It was really helpful. <laughs> and I do that to my students too. I'm like, well, can you sing it? They're like, not again. <laughs> Doe. Doe. <laughs> so we asked our listeners what creative practice strategies they have utilized over time. And we got some really interesting responses Christy Selkeen said, practicing Strauss while holding tree pose. That seems like it would really engage your core. Yeah, like multitasking, burn those <laughs> calories and practice that Strauss. I think Strauss burns a couple calories on its own, regardless of being in tree pose, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dylan sent in so many excellent suggestions, one of which is the 10 penny game. And if you don't know the 10 penny game, you lay out, it doesn't even have to be pennies. It could just be like pebbles or paper clips or whatever you happen to have out. And every time you play a passage correctly, you move one of these objects over. Um, And if you play it incorrectly, you have to move all of them back. Our friend Corey did this all the time, but he did it with walnuts and he called it the walnut game. (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) Uh, Dylan also said, I used to practice scales by rolling dice each practice session. My notebook would have six tasks per session, and I would roll a number that corresponded to that assigned material. So letting the universe decide what you're practicing and when. Cage would love it, I think. Cage would love that. (laughs) Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Jenda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Jenda. Jenda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Jenda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Kim Woolley, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Southern Mississippi, my colleague. Hello. Hello. Yay. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Double Read Dish. We're so excited to talk to you in this official capacity. (laughs) How strange, since I could walk down the hall and see you. (laughs) (laughs) Kim, I would love to start by asking you how you started playing the bassoon. Well, I grew up in a family of musicians. 
my mom plays the clarinet and my dad plays the horn and my older sister plays the oboe. And I thought, well, for one, I thought it was very cool that she got to make reeds and I wanted to do something like that. Silly me. I thought that that would be a good idea. So the bassoon definitely intrigued me, but more than that, I think what I wanted to really play was the cello. Mm. And yet at the ripe old age of, what was I, 11, I thought I was too old to pick up the cello. Uh, I think it's probably also because since both my parents played wind instruments, I, I assumed they wouldn't be able to help me play the cello. So I decided I needed to pick a wind instrument. And I wasn't interested in playing anything that any of them played. I wanted to be different. I, I, for some reason, I never considered brass instruments and I definitely wasn't interested in the saxophone. So I, the, the bassoon was the natural pot process of elimination, plus the bassoon was the same range as the cello. I chose bassoon, and that was that. <laughs> that's, that's the only instrument I really play. So talk us through deciding to be serious about the bassoon, pursue it uh, as a professional option, and your educational journey. I came to that decision kind of late, or at least later than some people. I continued to play bassoon all through, well, the first seventh grade band was when we started band in my school. And because I had picked it up at home and my parents had taught me before that, I skipped over the whole beginning band thing and went straight to the first band. So I was the only the only seventh grader in a class of ninth graders and definitely the only bassoonist. And I'm looking back on it. I'm amazed that I actually stuck with it. That was kind of hard, but I kept playing. Uh, what I was really serious about in high school though was ballet. So I didn't focus. I just, bassoon was just something I did, but I didn't really focus on it. I did take lessons. I played in the local or youth orchestra, but I was not in my high school band and was not at all serious about it. And then I went to a liberal arts college for my undergraduate. I went to Wellesley College outside of Boston and continued to play because it's just something I always did, but was pretty determined to major in something besides music because everybody in my family has music degrees. And again, I wanted to be different. The problem was I had no idea what else I wanted to major in. And when the end of my sophomore year came around and I had to make a decision about a major, I realized I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I became a music major. At that point, though, I was still focused on academics and was pursuing a music history degree. It's a, even though we had a great performing music faculty there, it was primarily an academic school and that was my my focus but I did start going to music festivals summer music festivals after my sophomore year I went to Brevard and then after my junior year I went to the Bowdoin summer music festival and sometime during that summer was when I thought hey wait a minute I wonder if I could do this I had just never really considered the performance side as a possible career for me. Um, but there I was playing with all those other student musicians, many of whom were from conservatories and um, hanging in there with them and having a blast doing it. So I decided to really start practicing my senior year of, of college. And it truly is sort of the arrest is history kind of store, story. I mean, it was certainly not easy. And I've had, there've been ups and downs, but I just went for it at that point and didn't look back. I graduated and then ended up going to Eastman for my master's and then kept going through school, went straight on to my doctorate at Florida State and have been very fortunate to basically be working in this field ever since I graduated and before, actually, I got my first job while I was still ABD. Um, first of all, I'm upset that I've never seen you dance ballet. <laughs> that was another lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but I have done 
many a nutcracker. Actually, there's some interesting bassoon-related stories there in my ballet life because my my bassoon teacher, I studied with Susan Leone, who's the principal bassoonist of the Arkansas Symphony. And so I would I was studying with her, yet the dancing on stage. So every December we we did nutcracker and there she showed up and was in the pit playing the solos and we did other ballets like Firebird and um bolero and she was always there in in the pit and i thought that was that was so great when my two lives converged and of course to have the live music um was always exciting for the dancers so that's how i learned those excerpts first (laughs) that's so cool Do you know what's so interesting is in iowa i had a student who did ballet and same situation. I was in the orchestra for Nutcracker and she was dancing Clara on stage. It was oh, yeah. really special. That's <laughs> cute. Yeah. Was, that was a, a great time. That was something I'm really glad I did. How does your dance background inform your bassoon playing or pedagogy? Well, as far as pedagogy is concerned, I think the discipline you gain the self-discipline you gain through years of classical ballet, strictly classical ballet was my training. I didn't have a whole lot of, I didn't do modern and jazz and the other sides of dance training. It was um, strict. And by strict, I even had the, the Russian ballet master who, who beat her cane on the ground or threw a point shoe at us when we, when our knees were bent. (laughs) So, you know, all part of it. Do you, do you throw your shoes at your students? Well, no, no. So that's why I meant to clarify the self-discipline, not the, I don't treat them that way, but the uh, self-discipline you, you gain as a, as a dancer, definitely, um, goes into not only what you have to do in the practice room, but how you guide your students to be successful students and, and achieve what they need to achieve in the practice room and um, structure their own time, how they should structure their own time and, and evaluate their own playing. Cause you, you're only in class with the teacher for a limited amount of time and you have to, you have to make self-adjustments throughout the day in order to keep progressing. Mm. So as far as pedagogy, uh, I mean, other, other influences from ballet, I think it's just, I'm, I'm very aware of the connection between all the arts and how we are not separate entities. We, we stay in our music schools working very hard and often don't cross boundaries and walk over to the dance building or the art building and, and theater and see what everybody else is doing. It's hard just logistically to combine that, but I, I try to encourage my students to, to incorporate elements of the other arts in what they do. And those of us who are fans of Mona Lisa's smile know that Wellesley is famously an <laughs> all women's college. And I would <laughs> like to hear about how that environment shaped your being a young woman. That's a kind of unique educational experience and environment. And if Mm -hmm. that gave you anything that you've carried with you into your subsequent professional life. It definitely did. Although I wasn't expecting it to, when I went there, I wasn't looking for that in particular. I didn't go there because it was a women's college, Mm -hmm. but it it instilled a sense of confidence that I didn't know I was lacking before Mm -hmm. I went there. Uh, It's such an accepting environment and encouraging and supportive that there was, there were no limits on what we were allowed or expected to pursue, you know? Um, And I, I think Perhaps had I not been in that environment, I might not have pursued music perf- performance anyway. Uh, I was I was fully supported along the way, and I 
came out and went to my other schools, not realizing that it's not like that everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it remains to this day, the, an environment that is a, a, a network of alums who are so supportive and varied, which is nice. Cause I, I, I met people in from all over the world and in all fields of study in that one place. And you just, that's something that, that I treasure still as an alum today. Galit will make fun of me because one of my favorite groups is Wellesley Wags and Whiskers. And we have great (laughs) exchanges about um, pet stories, but perhaps that's appropriate for another podcast. That is the (laughs) biggest sadness of my life that I can't join Wellesley Wags and Whiskers. (laughs) It is interesting though, because I feel like a lot of times we think there's one path to this, Mm -hmm. you know, and to not go to the conservatory uh, immediately Mm -hmm. as an undergrad to dare to have a more varied experience or to open yourself up to a different type of environment can be seen as a non-option or a death sentence. And I love that for you, you felt like it gave you the tools to ultimately be exceedingly successful in this field by allowing yourself to be open to that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think just personally, I gained the confidence not to let people tell me no, or not to let them make me think my ideas aren't valid. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like I said earlier, the, my career path isn't without its ups and downs. I definitely felt behind for example, when I got to Eastman, because to Eastman, because like I said, I didn't really start practicing till my senior year of college. So technique wise, I had a lot of catching up to do. And having been at Wellesley all that time where I wasn't, wasn't focused on that sort of practice, uh, definitely, definitely caused some struggles, but I have never regretted it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't change a thing. So Do you think that that feeling of being behind, because I relate to that a lot, you Mm -hmm. know, just Mm -hmm. that feeling of everyone else is so amazing. I really need to catch up. Do you Mm -hmm. think that that was a major contributor to how successful you've been in the field? Like it spurred you on? Maybe, uh, perhaps. I I don't know if it's, it's funny because those sorts of feelings about your playing often are deep rooted and lingering and it's hard to crawl out of that, that feeling. If you feel like you're behind, you kind of spend the next 10 or 20 years of your life still feeling that's my, you know, the way I operate Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way. But so in that sense, yes, I, I have, I have to keep going because of it because I know I have to work at it. So perhaps that's, that is part of it. I don't know. I mean, at some point I did, I, you had these lights come on and you realize you observe your surroundings and what you're doing and the success you're having. And you think you have these moments of maybe I, maybe I'm doing this right. And then Mm -hmm. you, then you put your head back down and, and start working again. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't linger on those thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Does the, undergraduate education you got at Wellesley and the confidence that you earned while you were there, does it affect how you mentor your students, your undergraduate and graduate students going into the field as it is today? Most definitely. I think the heavy academic load that I had created a huge respect. I have a huge respect for academic pursuits and knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I, I definitely encourage all of my students, no matter what degree plan they are in, to make the most of their education while they have the opportunity, including the liberal arts classes that they have to take, that they only want to take the music courses and only want to be in the practice room practicing. It, and I'm grateful for that, for those students that want to practice all the time. But at the same time, I, I, I try very hard to make them understand the importance of being well-rounded and knowledgeable in a variety of fields 
especially because there are no guarantees in this business mm-hmm. that you might be employed. I was just thinking it seems more important now than ever. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's no substitute for knowing how to communicate, knowing how to write, um, knowing how to find answers to things if you don't know the answers. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's that has to come no matter what your career goals are. Could you talk to us about finding your way into the professional world, higher education, and ultimately to USM? Sure. I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I went straight through all of my degrees in large part because I had massive student loans. <laughs> and if I, didn't keep, <laughs> if I didn't stay in school, I would have to start paying them. So mm-hmm. I, I went to, for the master's because I was, because I wanted to improve and see what I could do on the bassoon. And um, I went straight on to the doctorate from there because I, I needed to continue to improve. And yet I also, you know, I needed to stay in school. So the kinds of classes you take in a doctorate, you're sort of gearing yourself for academia. There are many, there are several factors actually why I went this, this, with this route. I felt, I've always felt at home in academia. Both my parents are teachers. Um, My dad has a, a PhD in music, actually. And mm-hmm. I, you know, on those standardized tests, you are forms they make you fill out in, in high school, where they're asking you what you think you want to be someday. I don't even remember the purpose of those forms. But I remember always selecting when, when they would ask you that question, what's the highest level of education you would like to achieve? I always selected the doctorate, even though at that point, I had no idea in what field. Mm-hmm. I just... It's something that I wanted to do. And um, so it seemed it was a natural progression for me. I also felt because of my, I think, the, my lagging technique, because of how I, I spent in my entire junior high, high school, and most of my undergraduate degree not practicing, you know, and feeling behind technique-wise, I just kind of convinced myself that I wouldn't ever be able to win an orchestral audition with the demands of perfection at that moment. And I, I just decided academic pursuits were more suited for me. I wanted to be able to do more than just focus on the bassoon. And this has been great for me. So I was lucky enough to get my first job. Like I said, when I was ABD and that was at Moorhead state university and then I got another one while I was still at ABD at the University of Florida for a couple of years. And finally, I took the extended plan writing my treatise to graduate, got graduated with the doctorate and got a job at Ohio University. And then I ended up finally at University of Southern Mississippi in 2005 and have been here ever since. I'm now tenured and... I, I realize I've been very lucky to have all of these opportunities and and I'm lucky to be in a place now where I do teach primarily bassoon. I have a couple of academic teaching assignments as well, but I'm not I'm not teaching music theory and grading all those homework papers that come with that. I'm sure a lot of people out there listening can relate to that. I have done mm-hmm. my share of that, but I'm no longer doing it. So I'm happy. <laughs> What is the difference between teaching undergraduates versus teaching graduate students? What are the different things that you like to emphasize uh, for both groups? Well, with the undergraduates, it's some of what I was saying earlier, encouraging the additional academic pursuits as well as, as their bassoon studies. I try, whereas if it's a graduate student, they are, they are in a more specialized environment, and that's that is what we focus on. Perhaps more varied things within music, but um, not as much outside of music in that sense. But I do think my approach is really it's more different per student than it is mm. per degree plan. Mm-hmm. I, I try to meet every student, each individual student, where they are and discover the ways they need the most help to make them a, to help them find their way 
they're all going to be leaving USM at some point. And if I can have a part in helping them get where they discover where they want to go and get there, then I, that's how I see my role. And it may or may not have to do with the bassoon, but through our interactions around the bassoon, I, I hope I can help them um, be, be better people and more comfortable in their own skin and in their own environment and discover what it is they are passionate about because Mm -hmm. that I think is, is most important. Thinking a little more technically, what is something, some advice that you hear yourself constantly giving to your students and what's maybe like an actionable tip that you could give our listeners to take into the practice room, something you find really works? The one, well, one I harp on them about a lot that is to write things down. I I really Mm -hmm. want them not only keeping track of what they're practicing, but taking little notes about how successful or unsuccessful they are at it. And, you know, kind of jotting down their thought processes along the way, um, especially those moments that they have a discovery or if they are, you know, really struggling so that they can remember to bring it, bring it up to me and we can have a conversation about it. I find that the students that do it usually organize their practice schedules and accomplish more in the end. Um, I tell them that as much as you think you're practicing, if you have something to look back and see that, yes, you practice, but you actually practiced this particular etude only, you know, 5% of your practice time last week, that w- that's sort of enlightening and will tell you, will open your eyes to, to many of the issues you might be happening. Sometimes it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves in the practice room, but if you write it down, it, it's um, easier to do that. It's easier to, to be open and, and upfront with yourself. So mm-hmm. I think that's one I, 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 for the life of me, I, I think it's, I blame, I blame technology. <laughs> People don't <laughs> like to write anymore. <laughs> I want everyone to have a nice, journal and a nice fountain pen and enjoy it somehow that's not gonna happen (laughs) i will give you a supply of quills and ink bottles a rosetta stone (laughs) (laughs) some papyrus (laughs) as a winner of many jobs do you have any special advice for the job seekers out there who are post dma um, looking for that in into higher education? Yeah, first of all, your materials have to be top-notch. You've got to get your Vita in good shape, easy to read, information in an order that fits the parameters of the job description, you know, nice format so it's inviting and all of that. Your recordings have to be good. You can't. I've I've... I've learned more about what not to do by sitting on faculty search committees than I learned Mm -hmm. by um, doing the job applications myself. But when you hear mistakes in the first few measures after you hit play, when you get a lot of job applicants, you're looking for a reason to eliminate people. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the quickest way to get eliminated is if you turn in a, a recording that that has flaws so having having top-notch materials is definitely very important but I think it's it's just as important to network be well connected I um, uh, besides having my degrees from three different schools so I had three different faculty bodies to oh, and, and collections of students to get to know while I was there I also went to a lot of different music festivals and summer music festivals, at least I, th- I think it's still just as important as it ever was, is um, one way to meet so many people who, whether they are the, the faculty or the students there with you, someday they may be sitting in a position and able to hire you. And if you 
first have met them and secondly, have made a good impression. It goes so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't stress enough how important summer music festivals are to your development. Yeah, totally worth it. And then I, I think also in another thing I would say about if you get to the interview stage of a job application is being ready to, to be on the entire time you're there, including if you are asked to do an, any additional activities. So you might have to play a recital and give a master class, but you might also have to teach a theory class or, or a music appreciation class or something that if, if they're, I mean, let's face it as bassoonists and oboists, a lot of times we have other academic responsibilities and it's, mm-hmm. it's very important that you, that you make sure the presentation you were going to give is, is a good one and intelligent because the, the people listening that are sitting on the search committees are um, usually listening for a variety of things because they need this person to do more than one thing. So uh, that's in your preparation. You have to give that just as much attention. Can you share with us a favorite performance memory? The first one that came to my mind just when you said that was uh, playing Chike 4 in Germany uh, with the orchestra. It was, it's all students from Eastman. They used to, every summer, I don't know if they still do, take a group of students to Heidelberg to play in the castle in Heidelberg. And uh, we played, usually there are a couple of operas that you play in the courtyard of the castle there. So beautiful. But one of the, our opening concert, it was in an outdoor location somewhere in somewhere else in Heidelberg. And we played check four. David Efron was conducting and just those last moments of the last movement and holding that last chord. And I still remember to this day, his, his arms outstretched holding us, you know, as we were playing that last chord and the, the setting was so gorgeous and I was, it was my first time out of the country and it was, that was so special to me. And again, just having that opportunity to be there so soon after I had made this decision to pursue music was, was definitely special to me. That sounds really special. Can we hear about a humiliating moment that you've had on stage? (laughs) I have had none of those. <laughs> I don't know. I think there was one time when I was walking out to play a recital, I dropped my reed and almost stepped on it. Had to stop and backtrack. Luckily, I didn't squish it. I picked it up and put it in my mouth and kept going. Can I tell you one of my favorite memories of something funny that happened to you on stage? Does it have to do with glasses? Yes, it does. <laughs> There's something about turning 40 that makes your <laughs> eyes not work anymore. And apparently it also makes your brain not work. It's called presbyoma. What? Is the natural um, declining of your eyesight after age 40. No way. And presbycusis is the natural declining of your ability to hear after age 40. Oh, it's a real I thing. I had no idea there was a name. Well, yes. I definitely have yes. it. <laughs> I learned that in my liberal arts undergraduate education. (laughs) Well, I never wore glasses before. And so I started having to wear reading glasses to be able to see my music. And because I spent the prior 40 years never putting glasses on, I couldn't remember to put them on my face. Well, if I can't walk with them on or I can't see, they're just reading glasses. I was afraid I would fall. So sadly, Glee, you maybe remember one occasion where I had to go off and get my glasses, but I have done it at least five or six times. <laughs> After walking on stage, <laughs> bowing, putting my read on and turning to my music stand, getting ready to play, I realize I can't see my music and I have to leave and go get my glasses. So I remember two I, of them. I remember two. <laughs> well, I'm, I am about to turn 48 and it's still happening. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you I just think get the big, better with age. <laughs> the biggest humiliating moment was when I was still in my doctorate. 
and I was playing with the Graduate Chamber Winds group. We had prepared about two concerts worth of material that we were about to take on tour in England, and we were giving a one marathon concert to play it all so that we just for us to have experience getting through it all before we left. But for some reason, I had decided to spend the entire afternoon playing the soprano sham with the early music ensemble. <laughs> and that's when I discovered that my embouchure could not last an afternoon of soprano sham plus a double concert. And right, the, the second last second to last piece on this concert was the Stravinsky octet and I was playing the first bassoon part when we went off stage right before that from the previous piece all I could do was run into the bathroom and burst into tears I was trying to splash water on me and get myself together I was so my my embouchure was gone I just I knew I wasn't going to be able to play it I didn't know what to do and in a few minutes came a gentle knock on the door and I heard the voice of Jim Croft, who was the director of bands at Florida State at the time, the nicest man ever, say, Kim, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> and he said, everybody's on stage. <laughs> the entire oh, Stravinsky septet had gone on without oh, me. No. <laughs> And I was in the bathroom crying. <laughs> and so the next thing I heard, he said to me, he said, okay, well, we'll just have to make some changes. <laughs> and he went on stage and told the audience that they had been a bit ambitious in their programming and, you know, that this is, this is how we find that out by, by experiencing it live. So we're just going to go on to our last piece. And so everybody came <laughs> off stage and they reset, and then I came out with everybody. The last piece wasn't nearly as taxing as the Stravinsky Octet, and I, with my head held down, I played the last piece and got out of that concert. <laughs> but I learned not to spend the afternoon playing the soprano sham when you have a big concert that night. That is something that I will incorporate into my pedagogy now. Before <laughs> your senior recital, you may not play the soprano sham. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any advice that you would say to a younger version of yourself? At this point, I might tell my younger in my early days that to practice a little more, you're going to need it later. But obviously, mm -hmm. as I said, I wouldn't change anything. If I had been practicing more, I might not have had the ballet career I had. And I might not have gone to Wellesley then. If, you know, if music had been my focus, that probably wouldn't have been my choice. And I can't imagine not having gone to Wellesley. So I don't really linger on those thoughts too much. I think, I think just if I could tell myself that it's going to be okay, you're going to get there. Don't worry so much. Um, that might go a long way. Maybe I wouldn't worry so much now if I hadn't worried so much then too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. So what is some of the best read-making advice you've ever received or what are some good like hacks for this read-making part of our life since you were so excited to endeavor upon it in the wake of your oboe playing sister? <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into, <laughs> but I think, I think one of the most eye opening concepts that ever worked for me was to uh, consider the balance of resonance versus of resistance in the read uh, to always ask that of the read, try to determine how resonant, if it's too resonant, not resonant enough, if it's too resistant, not resistant enough and how those two work together and, where in the read I can make adjustments to those two elements, just conceptually that, that works very well for me. And just the idea of asking the read questions. I do a lot of looking at my reads mm -hmm. and, um, you know, going through a checklist of, of just what are you able to do? What are you not able to do? What, how do those two things play off of each other. And if I'm going to make an adjustment, will it, will it be for the benefit of one thing, but something that will harm three things. And so mm -hmm. I'm able to 
make make my read making a little more methodical that way. Sometimes you're instinctively, you just want to start scraping away. And I, that's what I have to tell my students to do more of is just wait, wait, listen, look, mm-hmm. play at, and ask questions. And you'll learn a lot more about the read than if you just dig in and start scraping. Scrape with purpose. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Kim, what are you looking forward to uh, in this 2019, 2020 academic year? I'm looking forward to doing some more performing. I am a member of three orchestras, which I'm grateful to to be in. And that keeps me very busy. So this year I've got some extra um, solo engagements and would really like to add some more chamber music into my plan. It's easy to get uh, bogged down in the weekend to weekend to weekend of orchestral playing combined with my academic preparations that I have to have at school. So I'm, I'm definitely um, trying to come up with some other projects that are just for me this year for mm-hmm. playing and pursue some, some music that I haven't played before and perhaps play with some people that I haven't played before. And just to find something that's, that's for myself and not necessarily for any perceived expectations of me. So before we close, I have a very important question to ask, which is um, who is your number one favorite, most beautiful, talented, exceptional? Oh my God. Holly. Well, there can only be one answer to that to that question. I mean, it has to be you, right? Oh, thanks, Kim. <laughs> Kim, this was such a blast. Thank you so much for being on Double Free Dish. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This was fun. We hope that you delighted in that interview and that you will like us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are now on Stitcher. So if that is your preferred podcast platform, you can find us on there as well as SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play as always. And uh, don't forget to rate and review. We love hearing from you guys. Our next illustrious guest is Richard Kilmer, professor of oboe at the Eastman School of Music. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.